morning, Four Oaks. How's everybody doing this morning? Those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Scott, and what a joy it is to be worshiping together in God's house as God's people. Let's call our hearts to worship by reading from God's word together. If you'll read the underlined portions with me. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's read this together. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, for his steadfast love endures forever. Obviously, there's a, there's a phrase that is repeated a few times. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because God's steadfast love endures forever. If there's anything else that I would want you to walk away with, it's, there's none other than this, that God loves you. That God has steadfast love and faithfulness towards you and towards me as his people. And so with that, as the truth that grounds us this morning, let's continue to sing to our God who is steadfast.
steadfast. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But God is not just steadfast. He is so glorious in so many different ways. And the New City Catechism, which is just a basic question and answer opportunity for us to grow in our faith, it talks about God in this way. And so let's, let's look here what the New City Catechism says to describe God. What is God? Let's read this together. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. So God is more than just steadfast. He's all these other things. He's full of goodness and full of perfection and full of power. And he's the, the ruler and sustainer of all things. And so when we come in, in, in God's presence and we consider his majesty and his glory, we can't help but also feel we are not like God. He, he's like no one else. If we're honest, we say, yeah, there's a lot of times where I don't live in light of God's word and his will for my life. I fall short of the glory of God. And so in that place of what we would call sin, where we fall short, we're broken, where we're needy, let's confess our sin to the Lord right now. Take a few moments in prayer. For Oaks, even though we fall short of the glory of God, there is good news for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's read these words together from Exodus 34, uh, where, where Moses is asking for God to reveal his glory to Moses. This is what God says to Moses, and this is what God says to us when we confess our sin to him. Listen and read these words together. Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
For those of us who confess our sin to the Lord, God says, I have washed your sin away. I've forgiven all your iniquity because of my son, Jesus Christ. He's taken away your sin. He's died on the cross on your behalf so that you and I can be seen as pure and holy and without spot or blemish. That is good news for those who are in, for those who are in Jesus, which we are. And so in light of those good words, let's continue to sing to our God and King, the one who is right now praying for you and for me. Let's, let's sing these words together.
together. God, the words of this song are an incredible truth for us to be reminded of and, and to understand and know as we, as we live our lives following after you and your son, Jesus Christ. So God, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for your power and, and might, and we praise you for your holiness. But God, because of our sin, we are far from that. But yet, through your mercy, through your kindness and your grace, And through the work of your son, Jesus Christ, we can worship you now. And we thank you for this, Lord. So God, continue to bless us this morning as we open your word, as we continue to sing, as we take communion together. We pray that what is happening is that your name is glorified. So let us reflect upon that and be joyful in it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So before you take your seats, everybody, here's the thing I have for you. I would love for you to look around Find someone that you don't know and go say hi to them and that you are glad that they are here.
Amen. Well, can I just say that second service, you guys rock. You did a lot better than first service, okay? There was a, a lot more movement here. First service, not so much, man. But we still love them, right? Yes. Well, welcome. Uh, my name is Rob Pfeiffer. I serve on the pastoral team here at uh, Killarne and uh, oversee our student ministries. And uh, what, a, what a wonderful morning it is to be here with you and to uh, worship our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to say thank you for being here. In particular, if you're a guest here this morning, uh, we want to say welcome to you as well. And more importantly, we want to get to know you. So if this is your first time here at Four Oaks, um, we have a couple ways that you can find out more about the church. We have a Connect desk, a guest desk out in the foyer that has uh, some information about the church, some dates and things that are upcoming. And there's some really great people that we have at those desks that would love to get to know you. So if you have questions, uh, feel free to, to find them or, or look for somebody with one of these lanyards on. We would love to talk with you and let you know more about Four Oaks. Um, if you're like me, this summer has been somewhat busy. Uh, can you relate to that? Anybody raise a hands there? Yes, I can see that. Uh, summer does, you know, invite us to take a break, but at the same time, there are a lot of things that, that go on, a lot of traveling, a lot of activities. And, you know, we are just only a few short weeks away for school starting. Can I say that? I kind of winced back when I said that. But a lot of things are going on. Football's on our uh, on the horizon. Uh, a new change of season, and you know one thing that that does tell us is that you know things pick up pace. Routines, you know, for the school year set in. And one thing we want to remind you about is that you know we are aware of that. Um, I live that with my family. And one thing that we are doing that I'd love to help you know more about is uh, Reboot 2.0. If you remember last year, uh, we gathered together for about three weeks right before the start of school and had a great time of coming together. We had some food. We had uh, some great teaching. And uh, we had a lot of things going on for the church as a whole. And I'm happy to say that we're going to continue to do that this year. And so we have Reboot Tulpono starting uh, August 15th. It's going to go for three weeks. And one of the things that we're focusing on is we want to really help, you know, come around how can we reclaim um, spiritual renewal through the rhythms of our life? What are ways that we can just take some time to focus on our lives, our rhythms, and what are things that we can do to, to orient and point to God in a better way? And I can't think of a better way to do that to, than together. Um, we, we all have different contexts, different stories, and we can share in that together. We can encourage one another. But here's the thing. We can hear from God's word. We, we will have food, I'm happy to say. Uh, we'll have uh, some uh, programming going on for our, um, our children and students, and it's just a great way to start the year. So I just want to invite you to that. If it's something that, uh, that is new to you, it's a great way just to get to know folks in the church. And may I ask you to do this too? Invite people. Invite your neighbors. Uh, invite those that don't have a church home. And it's just a great way to see and be a part of what's going on here at Four Oaks. So Reboot, reboot 2.0. August 15th, 22nd, and 29th, we would love to see you there. So speaking of, of activities, um, we have taken uh, uh, several youth trips uh, this summer. And we want to highlight one in particular, and that is our Mission NOLA trip that we took about four weeks ago. And uh, I'd like to invite uh, two people up here, Luke and Maggie, if you can make your way up to the stage. We have some pictures we're going to show you, uh, this sliding up here on the screens. And and everyone, 
Four weeks ago, it's hard to believe it was four weeks ago, but we took a trip to New Orleans. Um, This is something that we have done for many years. We have a partnership with Castle Rock Community Church and Urban Impact Ministries that that spans back to the early 90s. And we have been blessed to be able to take many trips uh, with our students. Uh, We have some folks that uh, have served on uh, as interns uh, in Urban Impact Ministry. And it's just been a great partnership over the years. And we were able to go back there uh, this, past, uh, this past June. And we, we took about 30 students. We had uh, four uh, adult leaders with us. And, man, it was just a great trip. It was a lot to do, uh, impactful week, as you can see by these pictures. Um, we were able to minister alongside the church to the community that they serve in. And it was just a blessing. And so I've asked some of our students to come up here and help spotlight that. Um, these are our two faithful and brave souls that have joined me up here on the stage. This is Luke and Maggie. And um, I just asked them to share a couple things. And in particular, Luke, um, I wanted you to share just how this trip was impactful to you. Um, this trip like, definitely taught me how to be slow to anger with people who just get mad at me for no reason. Because, like... <laughs> Um, like with the kids, like you say like one thing and they just like go from extremely happy to just like angry and mad at you and then like instantly right back to happy. And it just shows like at home, they just don't go through, they go through a lot of hardship and they just expressing that anger on you and they just can't conceal it. And you know, like, like it's not their fault. It's just, it is their fault, but like it's hard for them to contain it. And it just shows like you just got to be slow to the anger within you. And just show compassion to the kids. Show compassion to, like, people who are just wronging you always. And, yeah, and, yeah. Amen, amen. <laughs> so just a, an increase in mercy, yeah. right? And, and that is one thing that's really great about this trip is that, you know, we are in a different context. We're in New Orleans, which is an entirely different place, obviously, than Tallahassee. But to be in that context where it's new and you're not familiar you're obviously aware of, in, in a different, I think, a deeper way of what's going on around you, and especially, I think, in tune to what God is teaching you. And so we were able to see that within the group. And, you know, we've taken many trips over the years, and they have been very special. But this one in particular has stood out in my mind, and I think the experience as a whole. I mean, God did some wonderful things uh, just through our work there, but just also the impact that it had on the students. Uh, things that they shared, things that were very meaningful to them. And one thing it did was it really unified us together as a youth group. And one thing I challenged the students on was that, you know, as we have definitely learned so much by serving in New Orleans, I said to them, you know what, if we're not applying that back here in Tallahassee, then what we learned is just, it's for naught. And so we met last night as a, as a team. We got together, got all the students together, and had a great turnout with that and just reflected upon the time. But we also talked about ways that we can continue that here in Tallahassee. And we had some great ideas as to what that is. And my prayer is that we do continue that, that God just reveals those things that we can be a part of. And that's something I've asked for Maggie to share, just like how God impacted her in, in just what we can do here in Tallahassee. Yeah, I think just seeing, like, all the brokenness and just the rough family situations and um, just the way the kids would act in, in New Orleans, it just, um, it kind of gets you thinking, like, that's not the only place that that's happening. Like, Tallahassee has, is, like, full of the same situations and just the rough family situations and poverty. Um, and so we just talked a lot about ways to be able to, like, get back into the community 
um, especially just the youth group, like building it up and um, reaching certain organizations. Um, um, we did this thing called Challenge Circle, which is basically where we would gather up all the kids in New Orleans, or not in New Orleans, but like in the community that we were in, um, and we would just like play games with them. Um, and so one idea that we had was just inviting people in the community to go to the field days that we have um, and just certain events that we had as well. So, Amen to that. Amen. Well, here's the other thing is that this, these types of things take resources. And uh, I just want to say thank you for how you support what we do in student ministries, the love that you show for our students because we, we feel that, we see that. But just on the whole, how there is just a faithfulness from the body to continue to, to, to give of yourself, give of your resources to allow us to do these things. So like, you know, what we did in NOLA, that's just, a, that's just a sliver of what I think God is allowing us to grow in and helping us to understand what he's calling us to do. So there's many things to do here in Tallahassee, and I'm just excited to see where God is leading us in that. But it does take your resources, and I just want to say thank you to that. And so as our ushers come forward, um, let's just keep that in mind. Um, keep that in mind that there are needs, but God is faithful. He provides, and it is he who provides. So as we give of our offerings this morning, we are giving that as a reflection of our understanding of his provision in our life, the grace that he shows us daily, constantly through Jesus Christ, and it's our way that we can worship him. So join me in prayer as we give thanks to God for that. Lord, just wonderful reminders of your goodness. Just like I said as earlier, as we've sung together, as we come and worship together, and we are opening your word together and just letting it transform us, I thank you for the fruit that we see here as we talk about a ministry in New Orleans that our high school students can be a part of. I thank you for your faithfulness in so many ways, for allowing us to take this trip, for the resources to be there so that we can minister and learn. And Lord, I pray that as we continue into this new season, that we are able to be aware of the work you're doing and calling us to in this community in Tallahassee. So Father, help us, unify us, and allow us to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we just give back what you have given to us, I pray that you bless us in that, Lord, that you continue to bless this church and we pray that you are glorified in this right now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Luke Piper, all I can say is if I had worn those socks to my high school in East Tennessee, <laughs> it would have been on. Okay, anyway, good morning, Brooks Church. Paul Gilbert, I'm the lead pastor here. You can turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 26. For most of this year, we've been preaching through the gospel of John, but we decided to, to take some time out here this summer in the month of July to do a little mini-series that we're calling Five Weeks of Wisdom, study through selected passages, concepts, ideas, truths in the book of Proverbs. And last week I said, you know what, I'd like to carve out about two weeks to speak on the subject of the fool and of foolishness. And you may wonder, Pastor Paul, what in the world would, would provoke you to do something like this? Aren't there more relevant topics that we can talk about? Well, it's interesting that we mentioned this last week that Solomon 
mentions the word fool no less than 71 times in the book of Proverbs. And so whatever a fool is, clearly Solomon sees this as a serious thing. And, and this idea of fool or foolishness is a big deal. And we looked at this last week because of what Proverbs says foolishness is. As a reminder, foolishness is, is not a misstep. Foolishness is not a bureaucratic snafu. It's not making a series of mistakes. It's not laughing yourself through episodes of The Office, right? That, that's not what we mean by foolishness. Foolishness, Solomon says, is no less than a fundamental breach, a fundamental breakdown between a person and God. We talked about how a fool does what is right in his own eyes. A, a fool behaves as this God is inconsequential. You know, foolishness is not ignorance. See, I hope not, but we very well could have fools in this room today. See, the fool knows and has heard and can repeat truth, just like we were up here reciting these creeds and confessions and catechisms. A fool could have been raised in church their whole life. The fool can know the Bible frontwards and backwards. Knowledge is not the fool's problem. The fool's problem is listening. The fool will not listen to God because he believes, the fool that is, that he knows best. Even when all of the circumstances and outcomes of life point in an entirely different direction, the fool, the fool persists in his path, and it is a path to spiritual death. And we left off last time asking us not to, to turn our, our attention or our gaze to the right or the left and to say, well, well, Pastor Paul, I've got a fool in my life, and he's a fool, and she's a fool, and I rode to church with a fool. And I, it it's wasn't to do that. It was to take a spiritual inventory for yourself. We encourage you to think about patterns, pockets of foolishness in your own life. Maybe places where you have your proverbial spiritual fingers in your ears. Remember, we said, there's a, there's a difference in foolishness or, or playing the fool in a certain context and then being what Solomon calls a bona fide fool. See, we're all foolish. We all do crazy things, dumb things. But here's the paradox. The person who acts foolishly and can recognize it and can listen to God through it and turn from it, that person is not a fool. Those who are true fools are those who think they have no need. They have no need of knowledge. They have no lack. They have what is sufficient for their own life. Thank you very much. So we ask you to go off and do some spiritual inventory. But today we are going to pivot because the reality is, as we're thinking about this subject of the fool and foolishness, many of us, quite honestly, have someone in our orb, someone in our sphere, someone in our family, someone at work, someone that we know who is caught up in a life of foolishness, is in fact someone that Solomon would describe as 
a fool who has stopped listening to God, who's living in perpetual foolishness. The, the, the examples are so many, but just a few. Maybe you have a, a prodigal son who's dropped out of school, who's run away with his girlfriend. Or a spouse who has, shall we say, a fairly checkered record when it comes to marital faithfulness and trust and repeatedly says they are sorry but always seems to continue in that path of unfaithfulness. Maybe you have a friend with an addiction, a gambling addiction, a sexual addiction, a substance abuse addiction, and they go dark on you. They won't return your calls. They won't return your texts. I could go on and on and on. All of us probably know someone or are connected intimately with someone that Proverbs calls a fool or a prodigal or someone who is wayward. And the question is, how does God call us to engage them? How does God call us, dare we say it, to love them? Now, as we we dive into Proverbs 26 this morning, let me just, two things that I heard after the first service. One, that by God's grace, it was helpful. And I hope it will be helpful to you. But secondly, that it was heavy. And so I want to recognize the heaviness of this issue, that we are, in a lot of ways, treading on sacred ground for some of you, many of you, where you're living out heartache right now. This is not abstract. This is not theoretical. This is not conceptual. This is, in fact, real. And so with that in mind, we do go to God's Word for help. I invite you to stand. We're going to be in Proverbs 26, 1 through 12. It's the most extensive passage that Solomon has on the fool. Let's read it and pray for God's grace and understanding it. Like snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Like a lame man's legs, which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like the one who binds the stone in the sling is the one who gives honor to a fool. Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or drunkard. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Let's pray. Father, by God's grace, we who were foolish were fools. You came and died to reclaim us as your own. And Lord, we acknowledge that. We come to this text, we come to this this theme full of humility, full of the awareness that we need you, we need your grace. And the fools in our life need your grace. 
So we're asking you to help us. We're, we're praying that this word would, would go out from this place. It would not return to you void. It would do exactly what you intend it to do in the hearts of your people. Lord, we ask that you would do your work in Jesus' name. Amen. You take your seats. Verses 4 and 5 are the two central verses, I think, in this text. It's around which everything else sort of orbits. And let me read those to us again. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, you can be a simpleton and recognize right away that kind of sounds contradictory, Pastor Paul, and, and which, which I agree it does. Now, love a fool in this way, don't love a fool. Engage a fool in this way, don't engage a fool in this way. Now, I'm going to go on this assumption. The Bible says that Solomon was the wisest man in the history of the world and that he, he, he probably wasn't so stupid to directly contradict himself in consecutive verses, okay? That, that he probably, that probably, he wasn't losing his mind. He, he knew exactly what he was saying. And we understand that when we kind of dig into the context and the nuance of what he's saying. And we say similar sorts of things. And let me kind of put it into, into our layman's language. Four Oaks, there is a wise way to engage a fool, a wise way. There's a, there's a way to engage that fool that will expose his folly and by God's grace move him or her towards repentance. So there's a wise way to engage a fool. But make no mistake, Four Oaks, there is a foolish way to engage a fool where the fool is just empowered to keep on being a fool. In other words, there's a way to relate to a fool that doesn't help him or her. It only hurts because it perpetuates what they are already doing. And I was thinking about an example of this. And in Friday night, we had one of those rare moments in the Gilbert household where Susan and I were alone for about 10 seconds. It was 10 or 15 seconds. I can't remember which one, but all the kids were we're, we're doing this, that, and the other, and we decided to, to watch a movie, so we, we pulled up Chappaquiddick. And if, and if uh, depending on when you were born, how old you are, that may or may not be that familiar to you. It's the, it's the true story, the happenings of what happened when Ted Kennedy, then Senator Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts, was driving with um, a young woman, a young campaign staffer named Mary Jo Kopechnik, Kopechnik and they were, they were in a car. It was late at night. Ted Kennedy had been, had been drinking, and ultimately his car went off the road, flipped upside down near Martha's Vineyard, and he escaped while Mary Jo died in that accident. And this is not to meant to be a political statement or about parties or political philosophies or anything like that. That's not the point. The point is to show what happened in response to this accident, See, this, doc, this, this, this drama sort of unfolds all the details and what Ted Kennedy said happened versus what really happened. Well, what, what was interesting or, or kind of astounding about the whole thing is that as soon as this accident happened, as, it, as soon as it, it, it became known that, whoa, there are some serious issues here, 
a young woman who was not the senator's wife was riding with him, and they had been at a party, and he survived and she didn't, and he didn't report it to the police until nine hours later, and what's going on? The patriarch of the Kennedy family, Joe Kennedy, in response, called in the team. It was the, the, the team of folks that had worked with Jack Kennedy, that had worked with, with, with Bobby Kennedy, the, the people who were, who were close to the action, the political operatives, the PR folks, the lawyers, even Robert McNamara was there who was a former defense secretary, and they had one job as it related to this situation, protect Ted. See, the pursuit of the truth at this point was not relevant. It was relevant only to the extent that they could figure out how to spin it, how to wrap it up in order to protect Ted Kennedy's political career. So the fact that Kennedy had a suspended license, no problem. The fact that he needed to sit for a police interview, no problem. The fact that we needed to do an autopsy on this tragic death of this woman, no problem. We can get around all that. We can fix all of that for the sake of protecting this person. It's a perfect example of answering a fool according to his folly. Because if you followed his political career from any point forward, you know that this was simply one in a whole series of tragic personal circumstances where many people's lives were destroyed. And Solomon says, let it not be so for you, people of God. See, there's a way to engage a fool that is, in fact, wise, that exposes the folly of the fool, that will move him towards repentance and change. And so here's what we're going to do. Four sort of, four to, sort of basic points. This is how we're going to break it down. We're first going to talk about love. What is that? What do we mean by that? We're going to talk about the relationship of exposure to repentance, why that's so necessary. We're going to do a case study from the Bible, and then we're going to say, what does this mean for you? That's, that's where we're going. What about love? Susan and I, we've been here some 23 years, walked through any number of pastoral situations, crises in people's lives, and I would dare say that one of the greatest points of confusion on the part of Christians is what does it mean to love? More specifically, what does it mean to love someone who is a prodigal, who is, a, who is wayward, who is, who is steeped in a lifestyle and worldview of foolishness. Remember, we sat down and counseled uh, a young woman, and she was married, and her and her husband had, had, a, had a nice family, and he had one of those high-powered, 80-hour-a-week sorts of jobs where he worked long hours and made a ton of money. But the problem was they always seemed to be broke. And the wife just couldn't figure out what in the world was going on. And, and as she kind of, you know, poked around a little bit, came to discover that 
her husband wasn't really necessarily working all of those hours, but he was staying out late, he was partying, he was going out with friends, he was drinking, he was blowing off steam. She, she suspected there probably was some sort of unfaithfulness going on. But interestingly enough, she really internalized all of that to herself. She, she, really, she really turned the, the focus of blame to her own self and heart and life. If I was only a better wife, uh, he, he, he'd want to be here. If I only kept a cleaner house, if I only cooked better meals, if I only made the home a more pleasant place, Oh, I know, he needs some friends, so let's call some friends to check in on him. What we need is a financial advisor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up the phone and call that person too. And not surprisingly, none of this really worked. In fact, it made it worse. It was almost like the country of France laying down arms to the Nazi Germany saying, if we're nice to you, will you play nice to us? And they only responded with more aggression, and that was her husband. So we suggested that she try something different. That she try something different. That, that she think about what loving confrontation might mean. That this might be an opportunity to bring in more church leadership who could help invoke accountability and boundaries and parameters. We, we suggested... If she's so in the dark about all this, she might want to hire a professional to she, if they could get to the bottom of this. But in the end, she wouldn't go there. And the reason, I think, had to do with this idea of having a misunderstanding of love. Well, if I do that, then he'll get angry. This will just make him feel worse about himself. This he might feel alienated. He might leave the home. And then what are we going to do financially? But, here, but here's the problem. What she thought was love was really appeasement that led to his entitlement. What she thought was love was really enabling that led to his irresponsibility. What she thought was love was overcompensation which led to his demotivation, the very thing she feared would happen, in fact, did happen. That, that, that's the paradox of this. So oftentimes when we are attempting to engage prodigals, engage the foolish, engage the wayward, and we're trying to move them to a certain point, and we're trying all these different strategies, we're doing them, she was doing them, because she didn't want him to leave. She wanted to hold on to the relationship at all costs. But in fact, she was answering a fool according to his own folly in such a way that he was only empowered to continue to do what he was doing. He had it all. Think about that. He had it all. He had a wife and kids and the boys and money and his freedom and his autonomy. And... This became a self-fulfilling prophecy where the thing she feared the most, in fact, did happen. That story, by the way, is repeated many times and in many contexts for many of us here. I, I know that. Romans 12, 9 gives us an interesting definition of love. And if you think back to your wedding day, and 
assuming 1 Corinthians 13 showed up in your marital vows or showed up in your ceremony, I hate to, to burst your bubble, 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't really have a lot to do with marital love. It's not the context. Um, sorry. But this verse may have, should have made it for you. Romans 12, 9. This is what Paul says. Let love be genuine. That sounds great. We do want our love to be genuine. Don't you want your love to be genuine for your prodigal, your wayward? Then Paul says, do this. Abhor what is evil. That would sound really great rolling off the tongue at your ceremony, right? You vow to abhor what is evil in this man. The word literally means an unwavering commitment to eliminating the threat without hesitation or indecision. Do you have an unwavering commitment to eliminate the threat without hesitation or indecision? That's what Paul says love is. And we say, how is that? How is that love? That sounds so harsh. That sounds so heavy. See, if your love is genuine for a fool, if my love is genuine, then we will be committed to a certain thing for a fool. And that certain thing that that fool needs above all else, they need this more than saving their job or lying for them or covering their tracks for some sort of illegality or substance abuse. This, this particular thing they need is, is much more valuable than a public reputation. The thing that a fool needs most of all is what we all need. And that's being restored to God. The fool needs to move away from sin and towards Jesus. Which means accommodation or denial or or just see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. That's why it may feel loving, but it's in fact one of the most unloving things that you can do. You see, having a commitment to someone's best means we abhor evil. We don't abhor the person, but we abhor evil. We, we, we don't look past sin, egregious sin, for the mistake of holding on to the relationship at all costs. Or keeping the fear, I mean, keeping the, um, the relationship together out of all costs or keeping the peace out of all costs. Folks, that's not a real relationship. That's, that's, a, that's a pseudo relationship that we, that we construct for ourselves to help ourselves feel more secure. But it is not the most loving thing that we can do for a fool. Guys, can I just say this for a second? I think sometimes our vision for prodigals is way too small. It is way too puny. See, sometimes we feel like if we can just rescue the fool enough times from the effect of their own consequences, then, then, then this time will be different. This time they'll keep the job, or this time they'll be faithful in the relationship, or this time fill in the blank. But God has bigger plans Expand your imagination to understand that God is not primarily interested in those things. He is the master rescuer. 
he, he wants to save souls. He wants to save hearts. He wants to reconcile lives. And so in order to understand what Solomon is saying here, we, some of us we may, just, may need a refresher or, just, or and maybe even a paradigm shift on how we are thinking about love. Second point, repentance through exposure. How does this happen then? That's the question. How does this happen, this kind of love happen? Look at, I'm going to read a selection of verses verse, um, from back in Proverbs 26. And I just want, as I read these, just think about what they all have in common in terms of ways that Solomon says don't relate to a fool in this way. Verse 6, whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. And I didn't do a Hebrew word study, but that does not sound good, all right? Verse 8, like one who binds the stone in the sling is the one who gives honor to a fool. Like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or drunkard. Now, what do all of these warnings have in common? I think they're pretty simple. I think Solomon is simply telling us, Don't try to engage the fool as if he's not a fool. (laughs) Don't don't just assume that just because he or she has failed in the hundred times before when you've given responsibility, that this time it'll be different. Or, Or because they have broken trust at the most deepest levels that, you know, they didn't really mean it. It's okay. Just just one more time. I think Solomon is saying, don't, don't take their word. Don't, ex- don't be naive and expect a naive result with 10, 30, 40, 50, 60 chances. Because the reality is, apart from the gospel, apart from gospel change in a person's life, the best behavior for future behavior is what? Past behavior. Doesn't mean the gospel doesn't change. The gospel has. The gospel can. The gospel will but the question is, how does, how does that work? Verse 3, I think Solomon points the way here. He says, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, bridle for the toddler, no, I'm just kidding, and a rod for the back of fools. Now, now rod here, I think, is a, is a metaphor that Solomon is using for this idea of, of pain, of discomfort, of disruption. In other words, through love, something that gets the fool's attention. Something that communicates, hey, this is not business as usual. In fact, business as usual won't cut it. Solomon seems to be saying it's going to take more than words. It's going to take more than threats. It's going to take more than ultimatums or arguments ad nauseum. You see, words are wasted on a fool. See, a lot of us have been having what has seemed like a one-way conversation for decades. You need to do this. Please change this. If you don't do this, then this will happen. But the reality is, you know you're in a relationship with someone who is full of foolishness when your words stop working. That there is a heart that's impenetrable. 
And Solomon says the way we expose the fool is in fact the very means by which he comes to change because he sees his actions for what they truly are. And that can't happen as long as status quo is maintained. Dan Allender, in a book called Bold Love, which I highly recommend, says this. In order to repent, prodigals must feel pain. Another quote from from a guy named Paul and Dave in a book they wrote one time. Here it is. A fool needs a love that is rugged, tough, bold enough to insist upon reality. In order for there to be reality, a fool's choices must be connected to consequences. One question to ask as we we unpack this some more, if you're thinking about someone in particular in your life or a particular situation, is there fundamentally any sort of incentive for that person to change from their perspective? Or, hey, I've got it made in the shade. But see, see, prodigals want it all. The fool thinks, and by the way, fool can be smart. A fool can be attractive. A fool can be winsome. A fool can be a leader of an organization because he or she is wise in their own eyes. Sometimes they're highly functioning people. They have to be to maintain the two or three different lives they have going on. They have to be very, very good. Sometimes fools can be very slippery. You know, it's just like hard to get your hands around. What I know something's kind of amiss here, but they're so good. They're so good on their feet. They have an explanation for everything. Paul says, and, and Solomon says, stop talking and start acting. So here, here's an example from the Bible, the third point, a case study. This is 1 Corinthians 5, and, and if you, many of you are probably familiar with this passage. It's kind of the classic passage on church discipline. But here we have a situation that in the church, a man is having a very public affair, He's having an affair, in fact, with the wife of his father, his stepmother. And and for whatever reason, he's pretty comfortable in that place. He's kind of got it all. He's got his life, his work, his job, his career. He's got his standing in the church. He has his reputation. He has his friends. And then he has his relationship on the side over here. And so Paul's writing to them about that. And listen to what he says in verse 1. He says, It is actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and listen, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So we don't know why the church had failed to confront this leader. Maybe they gave a lot of money. Maybe they were really influential in the community. Maybe they didn't want to upset their own job. Maybe he was their boss. Maybe they didn't want to appear judgmental. Didn't Jesus say, judge not, lest you also be judged? Whatever the reason, it's clear they're answering a fool of 
according to his folly. And this fool, this sinner, entitled sinner, felt incredibly comfortable in his waywardness. He was even boasting. So Paul's diagnosis is that this man is a fool. And he's on a path to spiritual destruction. But listen closely to what his prescription is. Verse 5. You are to set his flesh to Satan, Paul says. In, In other words, he needs to be put outside the fellowship, outside the church. Now verse 11 but now I'm writing to you not to associate. Now, this is, well, think about this. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, to not even eat with such a one. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, let's be honest. Um, For 21st century postmodern ears, not only is that shocking, that might incite violence, and I'm not exaggerating. In fact, for you, maybe you've been a Christian all your life, and you're thinking, whoa, that is pretty heavy, Pastor Paul. That that was another time, another place, another, another culture. See, that's not what Paul would say. Paul says... This this man needs to live life apart from God's people for a while. He needs to know that his actions have consequences. He needs to know that he can't just maintain business as usual, his standing in the public, the name of Jesus. Think about this, the name of Jesus. And so he doesn't need to experience the blessings of being a part of the community. So don't hang out. Don't, Don't watch the game. Don't, don't yuck it up like everything's cool. But what I want you to do is to respond and act in such a way where his sin is exposed. For what purpose? See, what purpose? Look at verse 5. To save his spirit. Isn't that interesting? Paul is motivated out of a deep heart of love for this man. Because he knows that for them to continue to relate the full, to this fool according to his own folly is only hardening his heart, is only making it ten times worse. And he's saying, give the man what he wants. Just let him know what the consequences are. Just let him know that if this is his preferred pathway, this is what this is going to mean. This is where this is headed. And you know what? From 2 Corinthians 2, sometime later, it, it appears that, in fact, this man did repent. But it was because he had to take his sin seriously. See, if, we, if there is something in you, if there's just like some, a little bit of pushback right now, like, ooh, Paul, that, that, that is uncomfortable. That's just a little heavy that's a little much can i just suggest something to us that maybe we don't take sin as seriously as solomon does as paul does as god does see we need to expand our imagination and to think about the future the spiritual future of the fools in our life sometimes our our imagination is so limited 
Because what they, we're, we're so afraid they're going to lose their job or they're going to lose their reputation or, or they're going to be angry or it's going to be an awkward Thanksgiving this year or, or whatever those fears happen to be. When God says, I have something far better, far better, but it's not going to happen in this way. It happens according to my wisdom. And so here, here's, here's the way I call you to think about it anew. In the last couple of minutes, as we think about what does this mean for us, what does this mean for you now, let me just acknowledge something in, in case you weren't tuned into this, but I think you are. Loving a fool is no easy matter. I entitled this sermon, Combat for the Soul. Because that's exactly what it is. Solomon doesn't spend 31 chapters talking about the fool for nothing. you got to be wise. You have to be winsome. You have to be, shall I say, shrewd. This is not a three-step process. Sometimes interventions and confrontations takes days, months, weeks of planning even in prayer. These, these, there's not one size fits all. This is... It's a nuanced, contextual, complex sort of issue. But if I could just tell you one thing today, just, just one thing, and, and there's many things that you probably should and, and could do, but, but as a first thing, as a primary thing, here, here's what it would be. See, I think when you read the book of Proverbs, it's interesting that one of the primary ways that Solomon says that we get wisdom is by the counsel of the people of God. Proverbs 27, 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad. And the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Proverbs twenty eighteen, Plans are established by counsel. By wise guidance, wage war. You see, you in, 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 the, in the privacy of your own heart and mind, you can come up with a strategy of, this is the way I'm going to do it this time, this is the way I'm going to love them, this is the way I'm going to encourage them. You need a plurality of counselors. You need people who have wisdom to be able to say, no, no. That's only going to make it worse. No, no. I know it sounds good, but it's going to boomerang right on top of you. You see, let me... This is just a very common dynamic that I've seen oftentimes in these situations. That oftentimes it's the one who has been victimized by the fool who experiences incredible shame and guilt. Incredible shame and guilt. Like, if I had only been a better parent, if I had only been a better spouse, if I'd only been a better friend. And what happens when you and I feel shame? What happens when you and I feel guilt? I don't know about you, but my instinct is to what? Hide cover up, run to my office. But see, when, when, when that's our impulse, when that's what we do, we cut ourselves off from the very care and community and counsel that you and I need from the body of Christ. So you, you really need to go talk to someone today. Your community group leader, your men's Bible study leader, your women's Bible study leader, you might make an appointment with one of the pastors. You may, might want to come talk after the service to one of our, our elders. The point is, 
go to someone. Now, granted, that's, that's, that's not the end of a process. That's the beginning of one. And something you've heard me oftentimes say privately is that oftentimes with prodigals, with fools, it's going to have to get worse before it gets better. It's like correcting your toddler, right, when they're used to doing some particular thing and you finally said enough is enough. Sometimes it can feel like it's getting worse before it gets better. You need the people of God. You need the the community of the church. You might be in a place this morning to say, Pastor Paul, it's not that I can't talk to someone, but I just, I am so bitter. I am so angry. I am so hurt. I have been run over. I have been forsaken. I have been abused. I can't, I don't even have a category for this. there's There's a huge context here. There, there's, there's some situations where the most loving thing you can do for an abuser is to, is to remove yourself and to have others intervene. And that's why, that's why the counsel is so important. But for others of us, we need to really ask God to make room in our hearts for love and grace and forgiveness. You know, we may not get reconciliation in this life. Reconciliation can't happen without repentance. But forgiveness in your own heart, see, that's why we need the gospel. See, here's what's interesting. Jesus came and died for fools and foolishness, all of us. But Jesus didn't just die for those things. He died for our own foolish ways. We've tried to love the fool. Jesus died for that as well. Jesus said, I I know you probably have botched this. I know you probably left unattended what needed to be dealt with decades ago. But listen, that's what the gospel is all about. That you find mercy and grace in your time of need. That's my mercies are new every morning. You know, the reason we come to the table each and every week is to remind us of that. You and I never, ever get past the need for the gospel. The gospel is not just for the fool. The gospel is for those who suffer alongside of the fool as well. As we come to the table today, and I'm going to ask our our leaders to come and prepare to serve. I'm going to ask us to do a couple of things in our own hearts as, as we come. One, pray for the fool. Pray for the fool in your life that God would break through. Pray for wisdom to know what you're called to do. Pray like you know that, on, that God is the only one which he is that can affect change. And then lean into Christ. To say, God, I, this is a mess, and I'm complicit too, and I have things in my life, and I know the way I've responded and the way I've dealt with, dealt with things. Find mercy and grace through Jesus today. So bow your heads and just spend a moment or two preparing your hearts.
Jesus, we know that that foolishness is our great enemy. But you, Jesus, are our greatest friend. And Lord, you've made a way to have fellowship with your friends, with us. You laid your life down on a cross. So Heavenly Father, we, we come to the table today as, a, as, a, as an acknowledgement, as a statement, as a declaration that, that we need you. That the fools, the prodigals in our life need you. And that only you can, only you can change a wayward heart. And we pray that you would have your way. In your name we pray, amen. I invite you to stand. If you're new here at Four Oaks, we, not only do we take the Lord's table every week, we, but this is the way we do it. We, we exit out of the row by row, the left side of our rows, come and break off a piece of the bread, take a cup of the juice, return to your seats. We come worshiping, we return worshiping, and then we take the elements together as just a, as a symbol of the fact that we are a people of God, a community of God. Four Oaks, this table is open to any who know that Jesus has died for their foolishness and are trusting in him. Come. Restore.